Good evening. If you came in looking for an outline, you didn't find one um, because I didn't make one. There's some lessons where there's notes and notes and notes and I have to call it down. And this one, it just didn't come together. So I didn't waste the paper. And you're going to also notice there's uh, just one slide. So, um, but I got plenty of notes here. So don't take that to think it's going to necessarily be a short lesson. I did put one name up there, but we're going to talk about several people. Uh, open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Um, the verses will not be on the screen, so you'll need to follow along in your own Bible. If you had lived in Europe in the early 1800s, you would have been both impressed and terrified by a man named Napoleon. Napoleon, at age 10, was entered into military school and he rose in prominence through the ranks. When he was awarded the role of Brigadier General, he was only 28 years old. His first campaign would take place when he'd attempt to win control of Egypt. Fast forward a decade or two, and through military intrigue and masterful manipulation, Napoleon is elected uh, the leader of France, declares himself emperor for life. Not long after that, he led his army against the Russian troops. He defeated them in battle, and as the Russian soldiers were retreating across the frozen lake, he ordered his uh, military to pummel the frozen lake with artillery and his plan worked it broke the ice and they all fell in and drowned so the word spread that not only was he a military genius he was someone to be feared he saw himself as taking the place of julius caesar or alexander the great and for most people they thought that too Napoleon was on everyone's mind and in everyone's conversation. Napoleon was what mattered most. Frank Borum, one of Australia's best-known authors, he wrote these words a hundred years after Napoleon's death. If you were living in the year 1809, what mattered most were the battles of Napoleon. That year stood midway between two great battles that seemed to shape the destiny of the world. They were the Battle of Trafalgar and Waterloo. One battle destroyed Napoleon's naval power and the other destroyed his remaining military power. In the year 1809, everyone was thinking of battles. That's what mattered. Nobody was thinking about babies. But what was God planning for his world? In 1809, William Gladstone was born, one of Great Britain's greatest prime ministers. Lord Alfred Tennyson was born that same year, as was Oliver Wendell Holmes in Massachusetts, and Frederick Chopin in, War in Warsaw, Frederick Mendelssohn in Hamburg. In the same year, 1809, to poor pioneers living in the wilderness of Hardin, Kentucky, the first baby was born into the Lincoln family, and his name was Abraham. And then Borm concludes, viewing 1809... In the truer perspective of history, which the years enable us to command, we may well ask ourselves if battles mattered more than babies who were born in the exact same year. If you traveled back to Egypt, where Napoleon took that first military command and turned the clock back several thousand years, the person who mattered the most was another brave warrior, an arrogant, cruel and newly crowned Pharaoh. 
He was commanding his vast empire. The Egyptian empire for nearly 350 years had enjoyed the benefits of free labor. And we know that story. We know that story well. They had the people of Israel, this chosen race, were in cruel slavery. And so for 350 years, that's where they were at this point in time. Ask anybody in the world, and they would tell you what mattered most, who was the most important. Pharaoh would have come to mind. I'll tell you what certainly wouldn't have mattered at all. A little slave hut near the banks of the Nile River and a Jewish woman by the name of Jochebed. Maybe you remember her name. She gave birth to a little boy. But what difference would that make? I've called these series of lessons. We're going to study this for the Sunday nights in June and July. Names we forget, truths to remember. And I want us to first look at a woman who's really overshadowed by the events of her world. People in position. People who maybe did more, you might say. But God, by faith, worked through these nobodies. So open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. It's basically a biography of her famous son, Moses. And everybody would know about Moses. The truth of the matter is, Moses would have never been introduced. Moses would have never been known, let alone kept alive, without the courage and the faith of this slave woman. Actually, this couple, the man named Amram, and we see her name is Jochebed in Scripture. And by the time you get to chapter 1, Pharaoh is terrified of the slaves that are in his possession. Because they're growing so fast. They're literally multiplying to the point that they're outpacing the Egyptians. So chapter 1 ends with this cruel edict. Notice verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. But before we dive in, I want us to understand the larger context of what's going on. You might just kind of back up the camera and see this is really one of Satan's earliest attempts to prevent the coming birth of the Messiah. Destroying the Hebrew race, the people that the Messiah would come from. Pharaoh is used by Satan to carry out his plan. Now, I believe Satan doesn't know the future any more than we do, but Satan does, does know the Bible. And I think he especially knows and remembers prophecy. As one commentary said, he happens to be a very careful student of prophecy. So, you're kind of at the late stage of the prophet knowing that God told Abraham that the people would be enslaved for 400 years, four generations, about 400 years. Then they would be released out of slavery. In other words, the nation would not be destroyed. It would be bad, yes, but they would not be put away. So no doubt Satan had his calculator out and he knows it's about time. At some point in the next few years, there's going to be a baby born that would be the deliverer. Moses is this fourth generation slave. And most of these babies being born into Egypt represent that fourth generation. 350 years have passed by. As one commentator said, Satan's alarm clock is ringing. It's time. So we need to understand behind the, the paranoia, if that's the right word, the cruelty of Pharaoh, of making such an edict that all these babies would be thrown into the Nile, the prince of darkness is doing his work. 
manipulating these people in power. So he makes a decree that every male child born in Egypt is wiped out. With that in mind, let's pick up the narrative. Look in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now a man in the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant, gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Let's kind of stop there for a moment. Like so much narrative in the Bible, the main point uh, is the main point. But the other points don't show up until uh, much later. But you need to get the main point. That's what's happening here. Obviously, the main point is that Moses was born. So you read through this and say, we get that. And so we immediately jump into that setting. However, you discover in chapter 6 that Moses wasn't the firstborn child of this couple. Evidently, prior to this edict from Pharaoh, they had another son named Aaron. So at the time of Moses' birth, Aaron was a three-year-old toddling around. And there's an older sister, Miriam, at this point, maybe seven years of age. I'd kind of like to stop right there and kind of explore all the implications of that. What would it have been like in that home, in that family? This family, these children born into this slave family, probably in a slave hunt near the banks of the Nile River. I'll at least say that from what we see later in life, these kids... We're taught about God. They knew Jehovah. They knew scriptures. They knew their heritage. They knew their family. They knew that their identity was not as a slave, that they were the children of God. They learned from the persevering faith of their parents, even in the middle of horrible, horrible circumstances. And none of them will forget that they're not Egyptians, even though they're living in the land of Egypt. They are Hebrews. Even if that condemns them to slavery. And all of them will give their lives, even risk their lives, to follow the living God. Again, that could be a, a whole another study. But look back at verse 2. When this mom, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. I'm reading from the NIV. The New American Standard Version says beautiful. When she saw that he was a beautiful child. Literally what it means is well-formed. Handsome. And some of you are smirking because, well, yeah, every mom thinks her baby is beautiful. And some of you have seen some not so beautiful babies, but the mom doesn't know that. And she said, isn't he beautiful or isn't she beautiful? And you just smile and say, that's a baby. Yeah, you try to be nice about that. And so you wonder, what does this mean here when it says she saw that he was a fine child? Well, to the family of Moses, Jacob had delivered him, but it wasn't a matter of show and tell here at all. It was a time of utter dismay. It wasn't the time to be happy with the baby being born. You have this edict, all babies, male babies, are to be thrown to the Nile River. And while Satan had this short-term plan trying to carry out a long-term objective to wipe out a whole race, to keep this Messiah from coming, she's thinking about, what about me? What about my family? What about my baby? What about the here and now? So he delivers this edict, which, by the way, is incredibly politically savvy of him. You see, babies were floated out into the Nile as an offering to the the God of the Nile all the time. And the crocodiles would find these babies and take care of it. 
So that was a, a common thing. That now God was considered the source of everything good, everything plentiful. So that was kind of common. It was the highest honor an Egyptian could, could give to the God would be to sacrifice your baby like that. So more than likely, as one commentary was explaining, Pharaoh had cleverly issued the decree saying something like, you know, it's about time these Hebrew people also pay homage to the God of the Nile. They've been benefiting. Look how they're blessed. Let's let them sacrifice some of their babies. And you can just imagine all of Egypt saying, yeah, we do that. They should do that too. So when this baby boy is born to these slave parents, what should have prompted a time of rejoicing instead is a time of panic. What am I going to do? So what exactly does this phrase mean? When she says she saw that he was a fine child or a beautiful child. In Stephen's sermon on Acts chapter 7, he says that Moses was no ordinary child. In the English Standard Version, it says that he was beautiful in God's sight. In other words, Jochebed wasn't risking her life and family because her boy was cute or handsome. She had, in some kind of revelation understanding, this is a special child. She had two children already. It wasn't like this was her favorite. She had an understanding from God himself that this was something big. She believed in the coming deliverer. Now, Josephus, a first century historian, writes that, that through a dream, this was announced to Amram, the father. That's how he knew that this would be the deliverer. But we don't know for sure, so we're just simply told. But we do know that these Hebrew slaves had been keeping an eye on the calendar as well. They would have known the teachings. They would have known the history. They would have known the promise of God to Abraham, that for four generations they would be slaves. So no doubt, we always think of those who are in prison doing the hash marks. They're counting time as well. And it's coming close to an end. God somehow revealed to them, especially we understand from Jochebed, that this child is special. So they conspired to hide him. But there's the problem. Where do you hide a baby? These slave huts would have been just that, slave huts. We're not talking multiple rooms with an attic or a basement. And not to mention that, it's a baby. It's not just where do you hide a baby, but how do you hide a baby? Babies cry. Babies make noise. Not the kind of thing, even a pregnant woman can't necessarily be disguised very well. So you have all these Hebrew slaves living in cramped quarters together. Nothing was a secret. Everybody would have known. Well, the phrase she hid him is repeated in Hebrews eleven twenty three, And it really what it means is she concealed him. The verb is also used in the secretive context. For keep, keeping something hidden from others. To meaning like to cover or to conceal. So what's really happening here? They're hiding him. They're, they're hiding the fact that he's a him. That's how you hide him. They're hiding him in plain daylight. Him is a sheep. See, think about it. When you see a newborn baby, you don't know if it's a girl or a boy by looking at the baby. You take some context. They're wearing pink. They're wearing blue. She's got on flowers. He's wearing trains. You know, it's something that gives us the context. And parents are oh so eager to help us out with that. 
But as the child grows, you don't need that kind of context, but you can tell that's a little girl or that's a little boy. But this baby grows. For 90 days, she nursed him, guarded him, made sure no one was around, perhaps when he was being bathed or being changed. We're not told, but they would have been circumcised. He would have been circumcised on the eighth day. That's what the law required. Can you imagine carrying that out? Nobody hearing, nobody seeing, nobody taking note. God help him to heal, to be no complications. They wanted to keep their secret safe. Did they tell family? Did they tell the grandparents? Were they also being deceived? We don't know. But imagine these parents. So proud, so happy to have their third child. And yet, the secret they're hanging on to trying to make sure nobody finds out can you imagine when somebody brings up the idea of what are you going to do with your second daughter how Jochebed would quickly change the subject to something else I don't know what the customs would have been among the slaves in Egypt but you think about what's happening here the real horror if we can imagine as some of her friends who gave birth to boys are having to put their boys out in the Nile. And she's keeping hers. Exodus 2 verse 3 tells us that Jochebed knows she could hide him no longer. We're not sure what that means. Maybe the concealment was getting a little too hard to, to carry on still. But don't think for a moment that she hasn't come up with a plan. Look in verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. The tar would have made it waterproof. The pitch would have made an odor that would have uh, 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 made the crocodiles not want to come and see what was in the basket. It would repel the crocodiles. Notice verse 3. Then she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, if there's a phrase to note, it's the phrase that she set it among the reeds. See, Jochebed didn't put her child into a basket and push it into the current and just cross her fingers and hope that it turned out well. It says that she put it in the reeds, set it among the reeds. She knew what she was doing. She knew exactly what she was doing. She'd been thinking this over for months. There's going to come a time when I can't hide this anymore. So she leaves the ultimate results to God, but she does everything she can to help along the way. She knew... Of course she knew that a certain day, at a certain time, this daughter of Pharaoh would come and bathe. So she set that basket at that very location. Now, for centuries, this particular daughter of Pharaoh is unnamed here in this text. But for centuries, she's been passed through Jewish tradition because of her role in history. Given two names at least. One is Thermusa, 
And the second is Bethia, the one that we put on the screen. Now we need to understand that Bethia isn't coming to the Nile with her washcloth and her soap for her Saturday night bath. She was coming to bathe, yes, but this was not cleansing kind of bath. It's not the kind of bath you and I would think of. The only people that would bathe in the Nile were the slaves. She lived in a palace. She lived in an Egyptian palace. She was the daughter of the Pharaoh. We know that through excavations, the ancient Egyptians had engineered indoor plumbing systems. They had lavatories that actually flushed. They drained through underground systems. This princess would have had her own dream bath. And you're already visioning it. We understand that. That that would have been her. She could have taken a bath inside in total privacy. That's where she took her baths. So why then is the daughter of Pharaoh coming down to the muddy banks of the river to take a bath? Maybe even risking a crocodile or two. Because it wasn't that kind of bath. There was another kind of bath going on. There was a ritualistic, religiously motivated, ceremonial bathing. The Egyptians again believed in the waters of the Nile, in the God of the Nile, that there were healing properties there. That's where some fertility would come from. And so they would have these ceremonial bathings or cleansings. You've, you've heard of this. Even people in India today, it's a Hindu custom to go to the, to the, uh, the rivers and they bathe several times a year. That's where they believe you get remission from sins. And that's what's happening here. Centuries earlier, Egyptians believed that if you treated with proper respect and honor, the God of the Nile then would bless you. Give you a child of your own. Bless you with fertility. Bless you with life. And from what we can gather about her, she's either a single adult woman or married without children. We don't know a lot about her situation. Now, she'll appear later in the Old Testament as the mother of several children, but she has none at the moment. The text doesn't tell us that at all. More than likely, she, like everybody else, is following the widely held Egyptian belief that if she's going to have children, she needs to go down to the Nile and, have, and go through this ceremonial bathing. So she's coming to the riverbank, longing, wishing, for a child of her own. Verse 5 tells us her attendants walked alongside the riverbank. No doubt protecting privacy perhaps. Maybe also spying for any wildlife, crocodiles that might have been there. But don't think for a moment Jochebed doesn't know this. They live with this for years. They understand their customs. They know what they do. So she set the basket among the reeds, the very spot where Bithia this barren princess of the Pharaoh would have her ritual bath. Notice verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. Then she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So evidently the basket had a lid on it. She opens the lid. This boy is crying. Now, we don't know for sure. We know he's crying. I don't think of this as being that 2 o'clock in the morning, pierce your ear kind of cry, thinking, I wish I had a basket in the river nearby. I'm just kidding. I can't help but wonder if it's the teary-eyed, 
that pitiful look kind of cry when you open the basket and it seemed to work. She says, oh my. And she takes pity on him. Miriam is waiting nearby. And you think about this with carefully rehearsed lines. The basket was crafted, placed at just the right spot. Moses, no doubt, was clean, wearing the cutest outfit ever. But beyond that, God had to do what only God could do. And after all, this narrative isn't how clever Jochebed was, but how God was at work in all these people, all these circumstances, not just to keep her baby alive, but to bring a deliverer to the nation. Notice she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies. And where did that come from? A princess doesn't feel sorry for a slave baby. That's treasonous. But this is God determined. This is God inspired. This is God formulated. This is a God provoking connection. Everything worked together in just the right way. And it produced pity. She was hooked. In reality, she was maybe the only person on the planet who could have convinced the Pharaoh to make an exception to this edict. And even still, this is God at work through the faith and courage of his children. Again, we don't know this as a fact, but first century historian uh, Josephus, he interrupts the text at this point. and says that what happens next is the princess then took her, this baby to her own uh, maidens. Uh, her own assistants, which is really a nice word for slaves, the Hebrew slaves, and asked them if any of them could, could take care of the baby. And they said no. So she strikes out. Again, that's what Josephus says. But what the text says here is that Miriam steps forward and delivers the line. Seven, eight-year-old Miriam. Look at verse seven. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Again, don't read this text and think that, what a clever eight-year-old girl. Just to be at the right place and say the right thing at the right time. These were planned, well-rehearsed lines. Parents, grandparents, imagine your own child or grandchild. Your little girl has the key line in the school play that's going to shift the whole scene. And you make sure she knows her line. Because you've memorized them too. And as she's saying them, you're mouthing them. Because you know she's got to say them just right, just so. Imagine Jochebed saying, Miriam, wait until the princess desires to keep your baby brother. And then wait a few more moments. And if you hear the princess asking her maids for a wet nurse, wait another moment. And then what's the line? And then Miriam says the line. Just so. Say it again. Say it again. Can you not imagine Jochebed doing this? Prepare, but even still... God has to orchestrate all of this. And the, the lessons to learn from this are so many, but what I see is the obvious one from Jochebed. We need to be prepared to do all we can. Faith does not sit on its hands saying, God, you've got to do something. Faith is action. Faith is you doing all that you can, and then God still has to do something. 
Do you think for a moment that the princess didn't see through Miriam's sudden appearance? Saying the right word? I think she got it. I think she knew exactly what was going on. But God moved in her heart too. And she determined for no justifiable, sane, reasonable intention, she's going to adopt a Hebrew slave baby as her own. And she's going to talk to her daddy and make it all right. Before we finish, let me show you something that kind of gets lost in the narrative. Jewish traditions have kept the story alive, which is so neat to me and, and just so interesting. And they honor her courage and her passion um, her given name, many believe, is Thermusa. I mentioned that a moment ago, but later changed to Bithia. And Bithia means, get this, daughter of Jehovah. You know, Old Testament names, names had meanings, and it was very significant. And that's what Bithia means. Something of God's magnificent grace occurred in her life. And I wish we had all the details. We don't know now. But did this woman consider better to be called the daughter of Jehovah than the daughter of Pharaoh? It's the very same thing, you remember, that her adoptive son Moses would say, Hebrews eleven twenty six. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than wealth and the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So even though she was trained, according to Stephen's sermon in Acts 7.22, I mean, or he was, according to all the Egyptian ways, which would have included, and you know this if you study this at all, math, engineering, astronomy. They were so good at these things that we still marvel at the things they constructed. Their calendars were amazingly accurate. But he never forgot. Moses never forgot. He belonged to Jehovah. And evidently, his adoptive mother... Didn't either. In the book of Chronicles, if you want to turn there, go ahead. The book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 4, verse 17. It records the lineage of the Hebrews coming out of Egypt as Moses led them out. I want to call your attention to 1 Chronicles 4, verse 17, where it gives, it's given the genealogy here. The sons of Ezra, Jether, Mered, Epher, and Jalon, these are the sons of Bithia, the daughter of Pharaoh, whom Mered married. And she conceived and bore Miriam. Shema and Ishba, the father of Ishtamoah. Now, let me, let me read this again. These are the sons of Bithia, the daughter of Pharaoh, who married, that's a Jewish man, who married, married, and she conceived and bore Miriam, Shema, and Ishba. See, that's not all. We're not only given the names of the sons, because that's, that's traditional, that's typical genealogy. You give the names of the sons. But in this case, we're given the name of her firstborn, and it's a girl. And notice her name, Miriam. This daughter of the Pharaoh marries a Hebrew. And after adopting Moses as her own, conceives her first child is a girl, and she names her Miriam. It was Miriam's words that first introduced this princess of Egypt to a faithful mother and father, this little boy who would grow up and never forget who he was. And all of this divinely orchestrated by God is again, it's a checkmate. 
I mean, we see all these situations. We see how evil Pharaoh was, how faithful Jochebed was, how, how uh, effective and obedient Miriam was, how full of compassion this daughter of Pharaoh was and even became part of their spiritual heritage. But it's God working in all of it. This woman who had gone down to the Nile River time after time, hoping for an answer, for meaning and purpose. She not only got that, but she got a son as well. She was introduced to the true God. She ultimately found purpose for living and following the God of heavens. And her name is Bithia, daughter of Jehovah. Evidently, she chose to leave the namesake of Moses alone when she bore her sons, but she still decided that her firstborn child, that little girl with those well-rehearsed lines, would eventually change her life. By the way, never underestimate the power of, what's what the Bible says, a word fitly spoken. At just the right time, if you will have courage and you will have faith, and step up and step in and speak out. God can use you as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these people of old who help us to see amazing faith and courage in very desperate times. Father, we may forget their names, but let us remember these truths. Help us to be like Jochebed. Help us to be like Miriam. Help us to be like Amram. Help us to be like Bithia. Help us to be like Moses. Help us to also be your son and your daughter. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Tonight if we can pray for you in any way, or if you're in need of baptism, we always have the water ready. Why don't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you.